Numbers chapter 15, we are dealing with another reflection upon our journey through the wilderness with the children of Israel would be some 3,500 plus years ago from where we are, but we agree with the text of scripture that we are also on a kind of wilderness sojourn. So what they've been through can serve as an admonition and warning as well as blessing to us. The subtitle of our message today is The Sabbath Presumptuously Despised. The Sabbath Presumptuously Despised. Now last week I introduced you to the whole concept of presumption. We talked about it at length. The idea of presumption is that a person would assume something or assert an idea take a position and then act on it, albeit his assertion or assumption is not yet validated or affirmed. In the scriptures, it would be the idea of advancing a purpose or a cause unjustly or inappropriately or without, without merit. The idea of presumption in the scriptures is when God sets boundaries for us, we have the audacity to not only ignore the boundaries, but remove them and proceed forward carelessly anyway and do what we want to do. Now, there is no one in the house that has ever done that. So I know I'm talking to you about stuff that is utterly alien to your character and nature. Now, if I have some children in the house, they'll go, yes, PJ, I do it all the time because that's what children do. They push boundaries. They test uh, limits. They challenge authority. They, they oppose limitations, but you don't. So as we are working through the text today, I wanted to share with you how that what Moses did after giving us that piece of information back in chapter 14, lo and behold, in chapter 15 of Numbers, an event occurs that serves for us as a model of presumption. The way I want to frame that today, however, is that you and I must know that our primary subject of consideration is, once again, the sin of presumption, where we're going to learn some things. And the secondary subject is the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath has been a very controversial subject for a lot of people, for a lot of reasons. And it's largely because you and I are given to an inappropriate focus on signs rather than the substance behind the sign. You and I are frequently given over to um, inappropriate focus and commitment to symbolism rather than substance. And one of the uh, areas in church history where this has occurred is around the issue of what day are we officially called to worship on? And the church has argued about this forever. You have what are called Sabbatarians, Seventh-day Adventists. And then, of course, our Jewish brethren worship on the Sabbath, the Sabbat, as you guys would know. All of those kinds of arguments are superfluous and irrelevant because they are the wrong question. Now, when you begin to learn how to actually investigate really what's going on in any given subject matter, the most strategic thing you can do is ask the right question. The wrong question will take you down the wrong road. And you may have conclusions consistent with that pathway, but the whole premise is flawed. 
So what do we do with the Old Testament? We take the Old Testament and we learn from the Old Testament in these kind of typical patterns and symbolic gestures and metaphors of history that emerge up out of a kind of catechism that Israel went through. Israel was catechized under Jehovah to follow very strict rules and regulations. But those rules and those regulations, as we're going to learn, were signs. Now, a sign is never an end in itself. It's always pointing to something else. So if you and I get wrapped up in a sign, why is a sign in the shape of an octagon? Why is a sign an oval or a circle or whatever? Those are not the questions. The question should be, what does the sign point to? Okay, and because it's this kind of query that you and I should be investigating when we want to have a much more tangible uh, grasp on reality, that's called comprehension, by the way, to comprehend something is to grasp it for what it is in reality. I comprehend that. When we want to comprehend something, we want to know why did God give us that sign? Why did he give us the stoplight or the stop sign? Are we to be enamored by the stop sign as if the stop sign itself can stop me when it's time for me to drive and approach that line and cross it? The answer is what? All right. You can remove the sign and you're still going to run through that line and you're still going to have the calamity of the perpendicular conflict that comes. The sign doesn't stop anything unless you're wise enough to know what the symbol and significance of the sign says. And this is why the text in front of us is so controversial to people. A man was stoned to death under capital punishment for just picking up a few twigs to light a fire because I guess he felt it was cold that day. And somebody was, you know, peeping out the tent and caught that brother. And then they sent a text over to Moses and said, Moses, didn't you just preach on this a couple weeks ago? And Moses got the text and they ran, ran out and found the man and they put him in war because they really needed to see how God would have them to handle that. Now, that's a whole process in itself that's worthy of a New Testament application. And what that would mean is if you see a brother or sister in an error fall or doing something that is overtly rebellious against God, you need to follow proper measures to make sure the outcome is OK. Right. That's what your Bible would say. It would it would require you being very careful not to go to the wrong people. Okay, so I'm going to leave that alone. But under our first point, the thing that you and I must know is that this individual that did this over in chapter 15, this individual knew fully well what he was doing. He was completely informed because the message had been preached before. Point number one, the message declared. The thing that you and I will come to understand is that God is a speaking God, is he not? He talks to us. And he has given us his text. He's a God that loves to text us too. And so we often are getting texts from God as to how we should walk. God wants you to know beforehand, before you make a decision, so that you don't make a decision in error or in presumption. Because these are the two categories we're dealing with today, error or presumption. What do I mean by the message was declared? 
If you look at chapter 15, verse 17 and 18, chapter 15 of Numbers 17 and 18, notice what it said. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when you come into the land, whither I bring you, then it shall be that when you and now all of a sudden, guess what's occurring? Instructions are being given as to how we should conduct ourselves. Right now, y'all should know this. Because at least once, if not two or three times a week, you and I are hearing from God, are we not? What, what I'm getting at is that what God told Moses to do, Moses was doing every week, if not every day of his life. Moses was preaching Torah to the people consistently on Sabbath day, but sometimes in between as well. What I'm sharing with you is when we say the message is declared, we're talking about a pattern of behavior that the people of God have been under from the time that God called them out of Egypt. They have been sitting under the preaching of the word of God as you and I are today as well. The Bible makes this very clear. Look in Acts chapter 15, verse 21. You know how we do. We read the, what is called the primer text in the Old Testament. Then we go to the pointer passage in the New Testament to confirm what that means because the New Testament explains the old, does it not? Listen to what the apostles said in Acts 15 about Moses. They said, for Moses in ancient time had in what? Every city, them that what? Preached him. Stop right there. I want you to capture it. When Israel entered into the land and they carved it out under Joshua and people obtained their inheritance, guess what they had in every city? Synagogues. What were the synagogues for? The same thing you and I do, to come to church at an appointed time to hear God's word. Israel worshiped God just as consistently as you and I do, only it was on what day? The Sabbath. And when they were worshiping God in every city on the Sabbath, guess what was preached? Torah, the law of God. Finally, when they got the whole canon, we call it the Tanakh. That is the uh, totality of the uh, first 29 books. And that is from Genesis all the way to Malachi. They were explaining out of Genesis and Malachi God's promises and God's purpose and God's will. For those of you who know the New Testament well, you know Moses, the summation of all those books pointed to who? Jesus. He is the substance and fulfillment of all of the promises in that book. So what we are looking at is what we call a parallel between the old, the Old Testament church, had them that preached the law. The New Testament church should be a church prominently known for preaching grace. Now we use Torah to preach grace, do we not? Because Jesus already taught us in John 5, 39, you are searching the scriptures, speaking to the Jews. You constantly search the Bible, but they are they which what? Testify of me. So we have a full understanding of the economy of the Old Testament in that the economy of the Old Testament was always pointing to Yeshua, right? Hashim, pointing to Jesus, Jesus. That's what it was doing. And so the account before us mandates us understanding the prescription. It mandates us understanding the warning, but it really mandates us understanding why God would kill a man for picking up sticks. Now, think about that with me for a moment, because, I mean, you can evade that if you will, but I'm not. I live in a generation where people really 
have a problem with God. I really do. And and there is a sense in which I could extrapolate this text and show you that humanity at large is constantly doing what this man is doing, picking up sticks. I really could. But more than that, I could argue that what humanity at large is doing is really what is going on in this man's heart because God judges the heart. It's not that he does not judge the actions because the actions are always connected to the what? But he judges the heart as to the grounds for why the actions do emerge. And that's what's going on in our text. The man is doing something that led to God's judgment and the judgment was put him to death. Now, human beings are constantly saying God is irrational. God is severe. God is mean. God is unjust. God is unkind. Am I telling the truth? Right. And, and, and even if they don't say it outwardly, they're saying it in their hearts. Our kids will do that. Remember, I'm telling you, your Bible is really a parent's guide from a much more cosmic and spiritual level telling children now you you need to listen to what I'm saying because you have a propensity not to want to follow rules. And then when daddy and mama puts rules out for us that are for our safeguard and our good, we want to push up against them. That's humanity. Humanity does that a lot, do they not? So I can imagine in a room of this size, there might be one or two of you that are visitors. And you so see, this is why I don't come to church. That old stupid, crazy stuff that they be talking. This brother ain't did nothing but picked up twigs. That's all he did. And God wants to kill him. Right. Am I telling the truth? God wants to kill him for picking up twigs. Yeah, and then they can extrapolate that if they're comedians. Right. The point is that they're missing the point. They're missing the point. What we know, according to the word of God, is that a little leaven leavens the whole lot. Yeah, one little spark can set a fire that'll burn up a whole society, i.e. Hawaii. Am I making some sense? And God sees the end from the beginning, doesn't he? God knows when a person is doing more than picking up sticks. He's preaching something. And he's creating something in the hearts of men and women that are watching him do something, as we're going to see, that was open, that was bold, that was just absolutely braggadocious. He's saying, I don't care who this God is in this tent over here looking at us. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I dare anybody to say anything about it. Now, that kind of attitude will send you to hell. Am I making some sense? So let me lay the foundation a little bit more for us to to get it. For Moses of old time had them in every city preaching him, that is Moses, being read in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Jesus affirmed that as we noted in John chapter 5, verse 39. And constantly Christ said, Moses spoke of who? Me. Subpoint B in our outline, then a future message to the youth. I want to capture this because that's what verses 17 and through 21 are doing. So Moses is preaching in Numbers 15. Listen to what he says. We're over in verse uh, 19. Then it shall be that when you eat of the, I'm sorry, start at verse 18. I want you to get the context because there's an application I, I wanted to bring. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, Moses, when you preach, when y'all come into the land, whether I bring you. Now, what is Moses doing? He's talking about future things. Is he not? Israel is confined to the wilderness for 40 years, are they not? 
And yet he's talking about what they will do when they get into the promised land. Who is Moses talking to? The children, not the parents. The young people who will actually possess the land. Please understand that he's a God of our children and our children and our children's children to the third and fourth generation that love him. God will reach over you and talk to your child and tell your child what his destiny is if the child is brought into the auspices of hearing the word of God. This is why we train them up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. You might be sitting there, dad, with your head tilted to the side and slob running out of your mouth and your child is hearing a word from the Lord about what God's going to do in him in his future journey with God. What a good word. I saw, I heard one clap because you're not getting it. The word of the Lord is for everybody. And God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God most frequently works with young people because old people are too stiff and hard-headed and cantankerous. And this is why we learned last week that he said, except you become a child, you're not going to enter into the blessings of the kingdom. See, because children are always living out of hope. They, they can't wait to bust the door open and get down, get down. How much more so when God is on your side? So I, and, and I'm thankful that we have a community where our kids love to come to worship. Tell them, young people, y'all love to hear the gospel. Raise your hand. Y'all love to hear the gospel. Yeah. And that's because we're saying something that means something to them. I'm never, ever talking over the children's head. I'm always talking to the children because I know God's going to use them. Most of us getting ready to retire. And so if somebody's going to take this world over for Christ, it's got to be the young people. Somebody say amen. No, I see it. I see it. I see the, these young people be putting all these little quips of PJ in their back pocket. I see it. Yeah, they do. They put those quips in their back pocket. They, they, I'm going to pull that out when I'm 20. Right. And because that's how God is. That's how God works. That's what he said. You who are saying the children will be a prey. No, I'm going to protect them. I'm going to guide them for 38 years. They're going to grow up and mature. They're going to figure out why I left you in the wilderness. And then when they enter in, they will have an opportunity to possess the land. What a word from God for our children. That's why you bring them to the services. That's why you sit them here and don't act like you know more than God. Often you'll say, I don't want them to go there because I don't think they can understand the message. No, it's just you can't understand the message. The children can understand the message. They know how to pick out the parts that make sense to them and correlate it and take away for them a precept, a promise from their savior for them in the present and the future. Am I making some sense? Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. They, they might have to squirm a little longer than they want to because our kids have ADHD, but our parents do too. We do too. Um, but, but, you know, we're training them on how to sit still, still. And so point number one under sub point B, a future message for our youth is so very clear. Look at verse 20. You shall offer up a cake of the first fruit of your dough for an heave offering, offering as you do. The heave offering for the threshing floor, so shall you heave it. Of the first of your dough shall you give it unto the Lord and heave and heave offering in your generation. 
And then it goes into this process that we're going to be talking about. And if you have what? Err. Do you see that? Leave that there for a moment because we're going to come back. If you were to look at the verses in front of that, verses uh, 18 and following, what you are recognizing is that not only is God going to bring them into the land, God's going to provide the land with resources, with goods, with um, fruit, with produce. And now all the young people have to do is understand that they are in the auspices of grace. Right? Because when they come into the land, they didn't sow it. They didn't harvest it. They didn't till it. They didn't follow it. They're entering into a full-fledged, fruitful land with blessings. All God told them to do was take the first fruits of it and give it to God to let everybody know they're operating out of grace and not out of works. Did that make some sense? You give back to God what God gives to you because it's from God through whom all blessings flow. And that's what our young people need to learn even today. I think that that probably is missed by some of our young people. They can start giving now if they want to build a relationship with God at the level of God securing their life and securing their income. They should be giving back to God now. You ain't, young people, you ain't got to wait. You don't have to wait until you're officially 21 or 22 years old. You can start negotiating with God in terms of what God gives you now. And the next thing you know, you will probably be more wealthy and more off, well off than your parents 10 to 15 years from now. I'm making some sense. I'm helping you with your economics, young people, right now. Because I'm here to tell you, God gives you strength to obtain wealth. Particularly obtaining it the right way. Okay, so please know when you are walking with the Lord and engaging in his principles, he's going to take care of you. That's what God does. If you take care of God's business, he'll take care of yours. This I know for a fact. There's no doubt about it. I can tell you there shouldn't be any broke young people in any community of faith where we're teaching them the word of God. They ought to know how to call on God to give them health and strength and a sound mind and how to open doors where there are no doors open and get them through those doors and establish them in their callings and in their gifting and in their purposes. And God promises to be with them all the days of their life. That's exactly right. That's his word, is it not? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways. The Lord will direct your steps. So shall your barns be filled with plenty, bursting out, so long as you give him the first fruits of all your labors. Is that word a promise? Yes. That's why you got broke old people and broke young people. Point number two, the message heard. Did I tell you that that man that's out there picking up them sticks, and this is in the continuous verb form, so he went out there all the time doing that. He didn't do this just one time. He was doing this constantly. We're going to get back there. Did I tell you he heard that message? So the message that Moses preached about the Sabbath day is found for us back in Exodus 31. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. Now, if you understand the trajectory of Exodus, here's what you know. You know that when we're in Exodus 31, we're just about to enter into that phase where Israel just acts a plain fool. And uh, Moses is up in the mount for 40 days. Y'all remember that? 
And Israel wants to take a golden idol and turn around and go back to Egypt. That's Exodus 33. So we're right up on that. We're down in Mount Sinai. We received the law in Exodus chapter 20. From Exodus 20 to Exodus 30, God has explained to Israel what they need to do when they get into the promised land. So we're back at that point. That's in about the fourth month that Israel came out. That would be Exodus 19, verse 1, 2, and 3. Don't go there. But in the fourth month, between the fourth month and the end of that first year, this is when this message will be preached. Notice again, Moses, speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying. So whenever you see that phrase, simply envision Moses preaching to the congregation. Y'all got that? Moses preaching to the congregation. And while I'll have you, I'll just help you just in case you don't know how to stratify these propositions in any kind of um, logical way. If we're dealing with 1.5 million people and Moses is speaking to them, and given that we don't have the kind of technology today to speak to millions of people all at one time, which we can now, he couldn't do that then, could he? So that means that his message had to be shared with a tier of authorities. And those authorities had to go and preach the same message that Moses said to all the people as a kind of downline, right? 10 to 100 and 100 to 1,000, as we learn in Exodus chapter 18. So Moses is preaching to leadership, and leadership is taking the same message and bringing it downstream to the common people. Did y'all get that? Very important for you to know that. So it took a little while, but not long, if you have a large enough group of elders to simply take Moses' word and go share it with the people. By the time it's done, the people know this. Verily my Sabbaths, you shall what? Verily my Sabbaths, you shall keep. For it is a what? It is a what? It's important for you to get that. Remember what I said in the opening commentary? People have the unusual and uncanny audacity to get trapped by the sign rather than what the sign is pointing to. Did y'all get that? It's important for you to know that. When you and I are superficial, when we are not committed to depth, when we are not willing to penetrate through the initial proposition unto its significance, we can get stuck at the sign and miss the substance. Now, here's what God did. He told Israel that the Sabbath, the Shabbat, the seventh day, was a sign for them. The first thing I want, to, want you to capture is the Sabbath day worship of the Old Testament was exclusive to the Jewish people. That's important for you to know. The Jewish people have been brought out of Egypt to become a sign to the world of the proper worship of Yahweh, Jehovah. So everybody else is watching how they worship Jehovah and the magnanimous day in which they get a worldwide testimony would be the seventh day. Did y'all get that? All right. Point number two, after we deal with the principle of, ex- of, of exclusion, that means separation. That means this word was not for the Gentiles. It was not for the pagan. This law was not for the pagan who had not been proselytized and brought into Judaism. Did that make some sense? I want you to capture that because what I want you to get out of that is this. I want you to get out of that the idea that the Jewish people are doing something that the Gentiles themselves are not um, are not themselves up, uh, practicing. They're observing. I'm not going to disappear. This is not the rapture. I need to get some tissue. 
So it's important for you to know that sometimes you and I are called sometimes big old box sitting up there now <laughs> all over my notes. Big old box. Uh, sometimes we're called to do things as the people of God that the other people are not called to do. Like you and I can't make people that don't know the Lord do what we do. Did, y- did y'all figure that out? But they don't even know the Lord. And we trying to tell them, you got to do this. You got to do that. You got to do that. No, 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 no. Don't tell them what to do. Tell them who they need to know. Does that make some sense? We always trying to get people to do stuff that we're not doing. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do the other thing. They need to come back and ask you, are you doing it? How constantly are you doing it? With what attitude are you doing it? Because it makes a big difference for you to lay rules on somebody else that you're not keeping. Then you want to turn it into a doctrine and start arguing. And that's the problem with our churches today. We get caught up in signs. And the sign is not the substance. But we will act like it is. And we'll tell people to go to hell if they don't follow the sign. And we ain't even told them where the sign is pointing them to. That's really bad, isn't it? All right, so it's important for you to to know that when we are looking at the text, the instructions are given to the Jewish people, not to the Gentiles. I'll make that good. It's a sign, watch this, between me and you. Thank you, Lord. It's a sign that God said that existed between me and you, not them. This then becomes another analogy or metaphor of Yahweh having married Israel or in a marital covenant, a nuptial covenant that would be symbolized by the Sabbath. The Sabbath would be like the symbol of a ring, a wedding ring that the wife has. That's good. Is that good? Right. It's the ring. And so what it does is it lets the world know that these people are in a special relationship with God. And until other people come into covenant along with Israel, they don't have to observe these things. Make sense to me? Makes sense to me. Now, the only additional thing that has to be done is Israel has to understand the significance of the sign and why God would put certain kind of prohibitions around it. Does that make sense? Right. So under point number two, the message was heard. And this is the warning in that I'm over in... um, I'm under point number two, uh, sub point A, because this is really the thing that we have to understand that this guy did. He became what we would call a what? Forgetful hearer. Then we heard Giannis, uh, whose name in the Hebrew and in the Greek is Jonah. You guys know that, right? We heard our brother Giannis telling us that we should be doers of the word and not merely hearers thereof, which is so easy to do. Because that was Israel. Israel were hearers of the word. They wouldn't do it. Now listen to what James says. This is the admonition for you and me, because you and I are kind of New Testament Jews, as it may controversially be said. I don't care. We are. If you be in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs of the promises of God. Am I making some sense? Own it. There is but one God. There is but one salvation. There is but one true religion. And the way to that God is through Jesus. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only doing what? 
Boy, we have a big problem with that, don't we? Do you ever recognize when you wake up on a given morning that you intentionally are inclined to deceive yourself? Have you ever woke up and said, okay, here we go again, Jess. You want to deceive me. I know that. Have you, have you caught yourself doing that? Right. Because we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, carve out our own path and justify grounds upon why we do it. And all that is, is simply refusing to be doers of the word that we heard. That's what this man picking up sticks is doing. That man picking up sticks. That's you. I know you didn't even think about that once. That's you. <laughs> think about by application what you do when you just just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. Don't nobody see me. Just a little bit. Right. Think about that. Right. You're leaning into a pathway that you carved out and you ain't doing it a lot. It's just a little bit. Just a little bit. See what I'm saying? That's you. That's me. Help. That's what the sister said. Help, Lord. That brother should have heard that word help way before he left his tent that cold Sabbath morning, shouldn't he? And every one of us are inclined to it. I'll prove that in a moment. Don't be, don't be afraid. It's just true. It's just true. A forgetful hearer we are sometimes. Look at verse 23 of James 1. Notice what it says. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man unto whom having beholden his natural face in a glass. So your Bible is a mirror. This is why folks don't like sound expository preaching. Because we have a mirror lifted up and you just got to see yourself for what you are. You like to lie to yourself. You like to go mirror, mirror on the wall. Who, that's the wrong mirror. Here's the right mirror, okay? The real mirror is right here. And if you get the mirror right, when you go mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Jesus is his name, right? Above 10,000 in glory and fame. He's the one that's fairer than us all. And you and I should be reading through our Bible, getting past our ugly face to the face of God in the person of Christ, who is altogether lovely and altogether wonderful. That's all James is saying. That's, that's all he's saying. Verse 24. I know I didn't throw out a bunch of metaphors for you. Tell you young people got a lot of stuff to build rap songs, songs off of. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. That's the man that we're dealing with. That's the man that we're dealing with. I'm going to show you a couple other things about him. Not only has he forgotten that he's been called by God's grace out of Egypt because he couldn't whoop Pharaoh. That brother out there picking up sticks couldn't whoop Pharaoh. Am I making some sense? He couldn't whoop Pharaoh. God had to whoop Pharaoh for him. That man is free by the grace of another king warrior. And now he out there waging war against that king. You can't win that battle. You cannot win that battle. You done lost your mind, haven't you? You have forgotten your identity, haven't you? Here he is as a liberated man under destiny for a glorious life with Jehovah. And he's rising up opposing Jehovah at one of the most critical symbols that constitutes his dignity. And he's failing to get it. All right, here it is. The message heard. The forgetful hearer. And finally, sub point B, because this is what we would call application if we were to end our message. Failure to treasure the word of God. Is that right? 
So Exodus chapter 31 laid out a principle. And you guys have heard this before, Psalm 119, verses 11 through 15. This is the third division, second division in the Psalms. You guys know that. In that division of 176 verses, you have, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Right. So when you hear the word, it's on you to treasure it to the point that it lands on your heart. Not just run around in the cranium of your head. Am I making some sense? Like, so you can be a hearer of the word and it's definitely going to run in your cranium. You can even quote Bible verses. You're unregenerate. You're not saved. You don't have any allegiance to God, but you can quote Bible verses. Have y'all met those people? Right. That might be some of you, but have y'all met those people? Right. Quoting Bible verses and you, you look, man, I had no idea you had a relationship with the Lord. They don't. They just went to church a few times and they have the intellectual capacity for obtaining and retaining data. Right. And, and, and a lot of times an unbeliever will check you when you're trying to witness to them and your foundation. Have you ever been checked by an unbeliever who quoted scripture on you? Raise your hand if that's the case. I, I feel sorry for you. But it's true. <laughs> Here you are, the real believer, and, and you trying to tell somebody something, and the unbeliever go, didn't your Bible say? And that's God loving you too. That's God loving you too. Because what God is saying to you is, you're my child. Wherever you go, you have to represent me without being fraudulent about it. And if I have to, I'll let a donkey remind you that I paid for you. Am I making some sense? Right. And then you pray for those donkeys because you were a donkey once. Right. You were a donkey once. Right. Go. Thank you, Lord, that that rebel hellbound sinner knew the Bible verse that needed to check me for my getting caught up in a form of self-righteousness. Thank you, Lord. You and I should be treasuring God's word in our heart, because if it lands in the right place in the heart, it will get a hold of the helm of your volition. It'll keep you from doing things that you and I know are not right. That's what David is saying in Psalm 19. We learned that last week, didn't we? The law of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The law of the Lord is powerful, making the simple wise. The law of the Lord is magnificent. It is able to keep us from falling. It's able to warn us and keep us from going astray. That's what God's word can do when it's on the heart. Because it's out of the heart that our machinations are stirred up. And we need that word to enter our cranium, land on our heart, and actually manage our volition. That's what he's saying. I love, I love the whole of Psalm 119 in that regard. So we'll take point number two very clearly. The message was heard. He was a forgetful hearer. And that was because he failed to do what? Treasure the word of God. Point number three. The message what? So the message can be preached. And people can hear it, but you can still neglect it. Like we can go out of this place and just say, I'm not paying anything, any attention to what PJ said. I'm going to do exactly the opposite of what he said. I mean, right now you can, on your way out, I hear stories about what goes on in the parking lot. Do y'all? I hear stories about what goes on in the parking lot of churches by saved folk. And I know he didn't hear a thing that I said. There was no penetration. The heart had built up a wall of resistance against God's word. That's church folk for you. 
Here we are again at point number three, the message neglected. What do we mean by the message neglected? Go back to our text, Numbers chapter 15, so I can keep it moving. Numbers 15, I love the way Moses constructed this. Look over at verse 32. And when the and while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that had gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. The children of Israel doesn't say how many, but we know that there was quite a few who observed this man as he was gathering sticks. He they found a man that gathered sticks. He did not gather them one time. He did it as a pattern. Do you understand that? He did this as a pattern. It was a deliberate pattern. Point, uh, point number three, sub point A. It was bold, it was continuous, and it was what? A defiant act. It was not, as we're about to learn, unintentional. It was not, as we're about to learn, done in ignorance. There are seven verses in front of these two verses we're dealing with. The seven verses in front of us deal with what is called the sins of ignorance. Those verses are predications for the example we have here. I want you to see it with me. Starting at verse 22, we're going to walk through seven verses to come to our text, which is our example model of something that's done not in ignorance. Because I want you to learn a doctrine about the idea of presumption over against ignorance. Verse 22 says, if you have what? And not observed all the commandments which the Lord has spoken unto Moses, verse 23. Here it is. I want you to follow the instructions. Even all that the Lord hath commanded you. What is God commanding us to obey? All that he has commanded us. We know that Torah has taught many of us that well, has it not? The Bible says, if you and I sin at one point of the law, we're guilty of the whole thing. God is obligating you and I not to piecemeal obedience, but take the whole shebango and say it has to be done. Lock, stock and barrel. Every jot and tittle has to be obeyed if we're going to honor God. Does that make some sense? Right. You ought to be scared of that, but it's the truth. It's the it's the God honest truth. God knows why he is telling you to obey every word from God. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Now, watch it. I don't want to hear anyone in the house saying, OK, Pastor Jesse, I'm going to do it. Don't do that. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm telling you what God is saying. I want to set you up to escape the inescapable. I want you to hear the mercy of God in this text. I want to show you why presumption will send you to hell. As we learned last week. I want you to see why presumption will send you to hell. He says, all the commandments of the Lord at the hand of Moses, from the day that the Lord commanded Moses and henceforth among your generations. Look at verse 24. Then shall it be if anyone commits, uh, if anything be committed by what? You see the word ignorance? Just blow that up in your mind. This is the second time the word ignorance is used. The first time it's used is in verse 22, and it's translated to err. If any man err, y'all got that? That's the first time it's used. The second time it's used here, if any man do something by what? Ignorance, without knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bullock for a burnt offering, for a sweet savor unto the Lord with his meat offering, his drink offering, according to the manner, and one kid of the goat for a sin offering. There is something to be done. God gives a prescription of reaction on the part of the congregation when there is ignorant 
behavior that transgresses God's law. You notice that we get to mitigate that ignorant behavior by the offering of a sacrifice. Did y'all get that? Very important. Very important. Now watch the repetition because I want you to get it. Notice what it says in verse 25. And the priest shall make an atonement for all the congregation of the children of Israel. And it shall be what? I love that. Ignorance, atonement, forgiveness. That is the gospel. Now I'll help you with that in a moment. For it is ignorance. That's the third time our word is used. Y'all need to mark that. And they shall bring their offering sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord and their sin offering before the Lord for their what? There it is again for a time. Let's go. Verse 26. Verse 26. And it shall be forgiven all the congregation of Israel and the stranger that sojourns among them. That is the proselyte. He will have that same caveat if he errs accidentally, if he errs intentionally. There is a mechanism for that transgression to be dealt with and he can be released from it. Y'all got that? Very important doctrine to teach. It shall be forgiven the congregation of Israel, the stranger that is among them. Seeing all the people were in what? Ignorance. So that, that, that means like collectively, we as a group, we don't know everything. I know you didn't know that, but we don't. I don't know everything. You don't know everything. We don't know everything. We're not omniscient. And therefore, we're not impeccable. What I mean by that is we're not perfect. And therefore, we're not immutable. What I mean by that is we're given to change. We must change. The reason we must change is because we don't know. If you knew everything, then you don't have to change. So when you meet all those old stuck old crazy folk that think they know everything, you know why they stuck. Because they don't know that they don't know everything. And when you don't know everything, you don't, when you don't know that you don't know everything, you don't know that you need to keep growing. Am I making some sense? Right. And so as long as you don't think that you need to keep growing, you are assuming you know everything. And that's a horrible way to live in a world where everybody else is ignorant. (laughs) Right? You're the only one not ignorant. Right? And now you wonder why nobody fellowships with you. Because the rest of us know we got issues. All right. So this is what the Lord is doing. There's a deep truth coming out of this in a moment. But it's just important. When you wake up and you realize you don't have nobody to hang out with, maybe we got something going on around rigidity. Um, and if any soul sin through ignorance, there it is, number six, then shall he bring forth the she-goat of the first year for a sin offering, verse 28. And the priest shall make an atonement for the soul that sins ignorantly. There it is. When he sins by ignorance before the Lord to make an atonement for him, and it shall be what? It's clear, isn't it, saints, how the issue is ignorance, how the issue is sin atonement, how the issue is forgiveness, is it not? That is the mechanism for the gospel. We'll get there in a moment. Now, verse 29, because we're getting ready to head to our example. You shall have one law for him that sins through, both for him that is born among the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourns. I want you to capture that and lift that up and understand that's a universal principle. This one here is lodged and fulfilled only in the gospel. Notice what I stated. The Sabbath was not for everybody. This principle is for any and everyone that comes to understand they're ignorant and that there is a remedy for their ignorance in blood atonement and that they can be forgiven. Did you get that? God is calling all human beings to that blessed mechanism. But you have to come to understand you're ignorant. Did that make some sense? 
The Jews are going to be taught that over and over and over again, but largely they're going to miss that blessing. But it's the message to all of us. How many of you guys know that before Christ called you by his grace, you thought you knew something? See it? There's one honest brother now. The rest of you guys still on your way. Uh, you, you thought you knew something. And how many guys remember the, the humbling epiphany of the gospel breaking open the understanding that I'm as dumb as a dodo bird apart from grace? Do y'all remember that? Do you remember assuming that you were right and you discovered that you were wrong? Right. That you really didn't know anything about the character and nature of God, but you were constantly assuming that position. And then when the gospel came, it turns your world upside down. It showed you that you were a real sinner and that God was more abundantly gracious than you could ever imagine. And that he had a real remedy to your problem. Right. This is what we mean by the power of God's grace. His invincible grace is able to show you that you're really a sinner. And this is why this is a sinner's gospel. You cannot be saved unless you know you are a sinner. And when sinners don't know that, they are operating at the epitome of ignorance. Isn't that true? Yeah. Listen to it. You shall have one law for him that sins through ignorance, both for him that is born of the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourns among you. This is not a matter of bloodline. That's why, that's why John said it in, first, in John chapter 1. He says, and as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Those that were not born of flesh or of the will of man or of blood, but of God. So salvation into this blessed condition of going from ignorance to knowledge on the grounds of atonement made and forgiveness experience is for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. This is really important for you and I to grasp so that we don't take the gospel and hijack it and think it's only for intellectuals. It is not. The gospel is not for intellectuals. It's for sinners. So under point number three, I love this point number three. We're dealing with a bold, continuous, defiant act. What do I mean? This man was gathering sticks to do what? Start a fire. Look at Exodus chapter 35, verse one through three. This is Exodus 35. Now, again, we're back where I told you Moses had been preaching for a while. And the Sabbath was one of the last messages that Moses preached after he explained the building of the tabernacle. Because, of course, they had to learn that God would dwell with them in the tabernacle. They had to learn that there would be a priesthood system that would mediate between them and God. Then they had to learn on what day they were to come to the tabernacle. Like we know to come on the first day of the week. We know that. I'll make that plain shortly. We know why we're coming. And notice what it says. And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, these are the words which the Lord hath commanded that you should do them. Verse two. Six days shall you shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be there shall be to you an holy day, a Sabbath of what? Rest to who? Right. So now we have the context of the nature of that rest. We're going to come back there. You and I are called to rest unto the Lord. That's a setting aside of your work. You get six days to make a billion dollars. On the seventh day, you bring 10% of that and give it to the God who gave you grace to make that. And then you rest on that seventh day with your eyes on the Lord who gave you that rest to strengthen you to get back out there for six more days. 
You don't get to rest any kind of way you want to. You know, I'm going to rest by laying back and watching ESPN. No. No, I'm not going to even go down that road. But see, that is not the rest to which God has called us. And here it is. Whosoever doeth work therein shall be what? Whosoever doeth work therein shall be what? Do y'all see that? That man we're dealing with in Numbers, he was there that day Moses preached that message. But he was a forgetful what? Yeah, he was there that day. Now notice what Moses said. Anyone doing any kind of work on the Sabbath is going to be put to what? Now I want you to see, now, now, now what Moses did, he went head on and extrapolated on verse 2. By verse 3. Watch verse 3. This is what we call an exegetical. Here it is. You shall kindle no fire. Like he just drew a little note and said, I see a brother out there in the congregation and I see the cloud rising up in his head. You know the cloud thought? And that brother said, no, nah, I'm going to do whatever I want. In fact, once I get out of here, I'm going to start gathering sticks. And Moses by the Holy Ghost said, and you shall not kindle any fire. Now notice what he said. You shall kindle no fire throughout your habit, habitations upon the Sabbath day. Do you see it? Verse 4. Listen to verse 4, and then we're going home. Moses spoke unto the congregation of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath what? Commanded you. We already see the death penalty. And we see it specifically for this crime, do we not? The man was bold, he was continuous, he was defiant. Ladies and gentlemen, our text said he was presumptuous. Y'all got that? Bold, continuous, defiant. Subpoint B, it was presumption. Going back to our text, Numbers 15, verse 30 and 31, we're getting ready to learn some things. So we've already noted that the uh, requisite to this example that we're dealing with is that God, God gave prescriptions for offerings for ignorant sins. And I told you this last week, there was no sacrifice for willful and intentional rebellion against God. Didn't I tell you that? Right. A lot of folks struggle with that. But when you read Torah, what you learn is there was no sacrifice to be offered for adultery. Do you know what the, you know what the, the, the indictment is for adultery? Stone. There was, no, there was no sacrifice for idolatry. There was no sacrifice for violating the Sabbath day. Did y'all got that, get that? Right. So where God was laying down rules of, of, uh, of sacrifices, they were for sins of what? Ignorance. Did y'all get what I just stated? Right. You need to know that because Israel was placed under the burden of law to help them to see that their problem was in their heart. And they were under a constant guilt for knowing that in their heart they were committing idolatry. In their heart, they were committing adultery. In their heart, they were coveting. Is that true? Just like you and I. Just like you and I. No, not me, Pastor. Yes, you. We all are given to adulterous thoughts, covetous thoughts, fornicating thoughts, idolatrous thoughts, thievery, criminal behavior, fraudulent, lying behavior. Am I making some sense? Yes. And, and I told you last week, that's why you never saw anyone coming with a sacrifice to Moses. Man, I just killed my neighbor, Moses. Here, can, can we offer some blood so I can be forgiven? No. No. I just got through, you know, having sex with my neighbor's wife. Can we offer up a sacrifice? You never see that. Did I open your eyes to something? Right. Keep them open. 
And the reason I say that is because you and I will create different laws and prohibitions and we will create, all, create our own law system. And we are swear that God gave it to us. God never gave us a prescription for sinning in that kind of blatant, harmful way to his glory or our fellow man and then go offer a sacrifice for it. Israel was under a covenant of works. And it was to shut them up to a, an illumination, a revelation that their problem is not external, but internal. They came home, didn't it? Very much so. In other words, you know what God was doing with Israel? He was intentionally making them sinners. Raise your hand if you got that. So I'm making you think counterintuitively if you're not getting it. I'm going to help you because many of us have known this for years. This is the problem with what happens in my generation when people turn the gospel into something that is not the gospel. If you, and this is the problem with what's going on in our world right now, and I've seen this happening for 40 years. Here's what I know. The vast majority of human beings actually are taught by secular uh, philosophers that mankind is basically good. And so the faulty assumption is that mankind is not a sinner by nature, that mankind, only a few of us are really bad people like Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin. Only a few of us, pastors bad like that, a couple other folks. But, but most of the rest of us, we're nice people. But have you ever met that old lady that's trying to walk across the street with a cane and you go and you want to help her? She slap your hand. <laughs> that old lady has a raging storm in her heart. She's just too old to do something about it. I done told you about that. Three kinds of sinners. Didn't I teach y'all? Y'all remember. Right, I'm going to leave it there. Y'all figure it out. But some of y'all are rocking chair sinners. You would do it if you could. You're just too old. You can't do it no more. But you can think it. <laughs> then you got your middle-aged sinners. They're rock and roll sinners. You're still in trouble. Y'all know y'all struggle with sin. It's a terrible thing, isn't it, when you're young and robust with all those sinful tendencies going on. You know, I'm so glad I'm older now. Aren't y'all so glad that you're older now? Much more settled. Right. Still got the issues, but boy, I'm glad my body is not raging against me like it used to do. It just want to dig a hole in the wall, like I said last week. Run out and just go tear up stuff, right? That's what happens when you're young. That's why you got to strap young people down. You got to make them work six days so they can be too tired to act a fool. <laughs> too tired to act a fool. And I told you, children coming out the womb, those are rockabye sinners. Sinners from the womb, are they not? I told y'all that, these little bitty angels. No, those little bitty devils. We're born and conceived in sin from our mother's womb. We come out speaking lies, do we not? Yeah, we do. And this is where the husband and wife start blaming each other for the actions of the child. No, that's your child. No, that's your child. <laughs> that's your child. That's your child. Am I making some sense? I'm, I'm getting ready to bring it home. I just want you to get it. Please get it because you're going to have to teach this stuff. Because I, I notice this. I notice that when we get into a cycle of having kids, we all of a sudden don't want them to be sinners. Haven't you ever noticed that kind of pathology among folks? No, they're not a sinner. They are a sinner. They got it from their mommy and daddy. Sinners. Every seed-bearing herb brings forth fruit of its own kind. 
Right. That's why we need what? Grace. And that's why we have a Savior who was our Savior in the womb all the way to the tomb because we need grace from conception to glory. This brother was presumptuously sinning. That's what the text says, verse 30 and 31. Look again at it, chapter 15. Look at verse 31, verse 30. But the soul that sinneth presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same is reproaching the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from his people because he has despised the word of the Lord, and he has broken his commandment. That soul shall be cut off his iniquity shall be upon him. Do you see that? So you've got two sort of uh, modifiers here, two adjectival expressions of him violating. First, he has reproached the Lord. Did that make some sense? So now the reason why the sign matters is because the sign is a deep redemptive message by God to the world about where rest is found. And you don't get to mess that sign up. The sign matters to God. God brought you into his company, brought you into his family, brought you into his institution, into his franchise. And you don't get to change the colors. You don't get to go in and restructure the system. The owner of the company knows what he's doing. Your job is to simply follow protocol. The role of the church is to see more men and women come into the kingdom of God. But the way it works is by following God's rules because they point to something else, do they not? Right, how horrific would it be to take the stop sign and turn it around to where all people see is the, the, the aluminum? Now we're going to see accidents happening every day, are we not? And that's exactly what's going on here in our text. He has reproached the Lord and he has despised his words. If you and I were to go deeply into an exegetical expression of those two terms, what it means to do is to pierce God through. The idea of reproaching and despising is to pierce God through, to pierce God through, because these two words borderline on what is called blasphemy. In the Hebrew, the idea of blasphemy means to bore through to thrust through. Now think about reproach. Reproach is a rhetorical device. Reproach is when you speak nasty, when you speak reproachfully, when you speak uh, in a derogatory fashion against somebody. Are y'all hearing me? And have you not heard the scripture? The reproaches of them that reproach you, oh God, have fallen on me. Did y'all remember that text? Please hear me. Jesus is saying to the father, the world is reproaching you, daddy, and their reproaches are falling on me. Thank you, Lord, because apart from Christ, I reproached God just like you did. And I'm so glad my reproaches fell on Jesus. I'm going somewhere. Give me a few more minutes. I'm going somewhere. Israel was being taught that they were what by nature? unable to keep God's law. This is why the psalmist says sacrifices and offerings you would not. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Am I making some sense? So if they can't take away sin, actually, what are the, what is the blood of bulls and goats about? They are signs pointing somewhere else. The whole system is a system 
of signs, so is the Sabbath. Y'all got it? You're not asking what day we worship God on. You're asking, how do we worship him? Who do we worship? That's what the Sabbath is about. It's not what day. We know in the New Testament, you can worship God on any day you want to. This is really true. Those that worship God are to worship him in spirit and in truth. For such are the father is the father seeking to worship him. It's not worshiping him on this mountain or on that mountain or in this place or in that place. It's not a place. It's not a day. It's a person. I said I was going to be done in 15 minutes and I will. But I want to make because I'm looking out in the audience. I see all the, all the beautiful new people. And I just want you guys to know that we have thought these things through for 27 years. I don't preach these things in a very flippant way. Deep analysis of the text for a long time. It's very clear to us that Jesus is the totality of Scripture. The person and work of Christ is the message of every verse in the Bible when properly interpreted. Am I making some sense? Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It's written of me, not of you, not of y'all, not of churches, not of denominations, not of cults, not of groups, of Yeshua, of Jesus, of Nazareth. This book is about him. Yes, it is. And if that offends you, that's where your problem is. You like that brother picking up sticks instead of resting. Y'all with me? All right. I was sitting here thinking, this brother been doing this week in and week out, week in and week out, and finally they called him. Do you see that? Finally they called him. I'm thinking about an application so I can go to the fourth point. When you are stuck in the wilderness of spiritual rebellion against God, it means you are living a hopeless and an aimless life. That has no future. When you are trapped by a failure to live optimistically about what God has for you in the future, and you're stuck in that narrow space, and the characteristic of that space is wilderness, where you have no fruitfulness, no joy, nothing but dirt, nothing but dry, arid experience, you are going to diminish in your life to hopelessness. When you're stuck going around in circles to and fro in the same space and you can't matriculate up, you can't abound over, you can't proceed forward, you are going to be miserably hopeless. Am I making some sense? I want this application to come home because it's not your job or mine to bind people and trap them and put them in holes and, and, and binds of wilderness. God is all, he's calling all of us to free grace. He's calling all of us to a glorious future in the person of Christ. He's calling all of us to glory. That means we have a journey to experience up and out up and beyond where we are. Up and out of and beyond where we are. And he's going with us. Your life should be a walk with God. And it should be a walk through and out of the wilderness into the purposes of God. But when you are trapped, come on now, somebody be honest. You can start thinking very dark, very negative, very painfully hopeless. You can get to a place 
where you just want to expire and check out. Am I making some sense? And if that application is true, it might very well be that this man was setting himself up to be killed. Am I making some sense? Because we know that there's exactly that kind of pathology today. People go out and commit crimes hoping the police comes and shoot them. When you and I are living in the hopelessness of a confinement, a wilderness experience, and there's no fruit anywhere, no living water, no bread of life, nothing but this dry, arid, hopeless, futureless existence, yeah, you will now start even rebelling against God. I'm making some sense? It is. You'll start rebelling against God. Start rebelling against God. Now, and think about this. This brother just said, I do not care what God says. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 19. I just want you to see it. I I want you to see it. Because you and I have to be sensitive to the fact that there may be people in our life going through this. And you want to be able to negotiate this well. if You want to help them know that there's a way out of the wilderness. There's a way out of despair, way out of darkness. There's a way out of the pit. And it's always the way that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But in a much more substantial and significant way. Jesus can get you out, right? But you have to believe it and you have to walk in those principles that will help you up out of that pit. Here it is. Listen to the language. And it shall come to pass when this man hears the words of the curse. Now, Deuteronomy 28 and 29 are all the curses that God placed on Israel for violating his Sabbath. The reason Israel went into captivity to Babylon was because they violated Sabbath. Are y'all keeping up with me? I'm not going there. Uh, You should already know. God destroyed the land by Nebuchadnezzar and sent Israel into Assyria and into Babylon. Did he not? So that the land could rest for 70 years. The land Sabbath for 70 years because Israel wouldn't Sabbath when they were in the land. Too caught up in idolatry and making money. No doubt about it. Read it for yourself, Nehemiah chapter 13. Here it is. And it shall come to pass when he hears the preaching about the Sabbath that he bless himself. Doesn't that sound like the Pharisee in Luke 10, Luke 15? Remember the Pharisee in Luke 10? He was in the temple and then there was a publican in the temple. And the publican's back of the church, way back there, because he has enough consciousness to know that he has no grounds to draw near to God. But the Pharisee is all the way up front got his hands up saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that publican back there. And that man is blessing himself, is he not? The Bible says he prayed thus with himself. He didn't pray to God. God didn't answer him back. That brother just praying to himself. He was satisfied with himself. Can you imagine that kind of narcissism? I'm praying to me and I'm happy about it. If that's not narcissism, I don't know what is. How many of you guys are children of God in the house with me? And how many of you know empty prayer? You're praying and you know the Lord ain't at home at all. (laughs) He out hanging out with other folk and you're going, now I know. I know the Lord ain't hearing me, you know. Now I'm being anthropomorphic. You guys already know that God is everywhere present, but it does not mean he approves of your calling on him, particularly if you're calling on him in hypocrisy. The Lord will not hear you 
And sometimes you and I know that. And sometimes when God wants us to really have a conversation with him, he's going to compel, compel you by not responding to you until you really raise the volume in your heart. Lord, I need you. I need you. Am I making some sense? Right. So, now watch this brother so I can go and watch this brother. He, he blessed himself in the heart. And here's what he said. I shall have peace. Now, God has said from Leviticus 26 to Deuteronomy 28, no peace, saith my Lord, to the wicked. And yet this man is saying he's going to have peace. If that is not presumption, I don't know what is. God's laying down curses. And this man said, I'm not going to obey God. And guess what? I'm still going to have peace. Have you ever met somebody like that? I hope not. I hope you, I hope you haven't because that's a, that person is scary. That's a scary person who's sticking his fist in God's face and saying, I'm going to have peace even though you're telling me I won't. That's the man in our text. I shall have peace though I walk in the imagination of my heart to add drunkenness to thirst. That's a metaphor for saying you can be drunk on the pride of your own presumption. You can be deluded and inebriated on the foolishness of your own assumptions. Am I making some sense? And, and, and my notes say this. Here this guy is out there picking up sticks because he has no future. And eventually your behavior, when you have no future, will be seen by others. Is that true? Well, after a while, your craziness is going to be uh, famous. <laughs> It's going to have some notoriety. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I know him. Yeah, I know her. Yeah, yeah, I saw that too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, ain't no doubt. They got issues, right? After a while, yeah, we know them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what's going on there, but, but I'm watching too. Eventually, your choices will be seen by others. Watch this. Because of the hardness of your heart. Initially, when we are rebelling against God, it's in the deep secret crevices of our soul. It always starts in the inner man. We don't ever make a public show of our hostility against God. It starts in the inner man. But here's the reality. Uh, the kind of people we are is we need people to notice us. And so when, we, when we're walking in steep rebellion, at some point, we're going to do the peep show. Did that make some sense? We're going to start playing our cards. We're going to start opening the curtain. We're going to start letting people in. I know I'm talking to somebody. And, and God knows that. He knows that whatsoever is done in secret will be made known publicly. Whatever is done in the house is going to come to the rooftop. And we know it too. Y'all know a lot of people, you go, man, why did it take so long for them to get caught? And why did they get caught after a while? It's because they want people to see it. That brother's walking around picking up sticks. After a while, he knows people see. But nobody did anything. Now, I want you to see why. As I'm thinking through these notes. I'm thinking when a man or woman hardens their heart, even if they are rebuked by people, they still won't hear. So sometimes the person that rebukes you is rebuking you because they love you and because they fear God. But once they rebuke you once or twice and you don't heed, they are not obligated to keep telling you you're doing wrong. Stay with me. So they're going to shut up. And then all of a sudden you're going to think I'm all right because they didn't shut up. You are not all right. 
They've shutting up because they've resolved, okay, they've heard out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now it's God's turn. And so you'll practice this hardness of heart, heart and you'll run across people that will be silent or you'll run across people that will celebrate your rebellion. Right? In our world, we got people that do that all the time. Yeah, listen, everybody wants a crowd. Right? So you can be in open rebellion against your God. And we know all kinds of forms of rebellion, do we not? Where people are walking in that rebellion and they are seeking a group of people applauding them for that rebellion. Even in Jesus' name, do I have to give us a list? If, if what I am saying is not true, we wouldn't have the kind of audacious rebellion going on in Jesus' name today that has to do with the utter destruction of who we are as males and females. There was a day when none of this stuff was done publicly. There was a day when none of this was done publicly. It was all in the closet. Our addictions were in the closet. Our porn was in the closet. Our lust was in the closet. Our sexual picadillos and perversions were all done in the dark, 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 dark regions of the world. Were they not? We used to call them red light districts. You know what that means? Only crazy folk go there. Because they're doing stuff that would be shameful if it was public. I'm making sense. I'm making sense. And see, I'm trying to help you to know that even we as Christians can have hardened hearts in these matters. And you can watch Christians. They swear they say, might be, might not, living in this kind of overt, open, hostile, reproachful, despising God's rebellion. And they dare you to say anything about it because they're going to find them a crew. That's what Facebook and Twitter is all about. You're going to get a hundred people that like your rebellion. Am I making sense? Boy, if we don't promote narcissism, I don't know what generation we live in. That's all I'm saying. But you need to know, rebel, I'm talking about you who are given to presumption and and drink iniquity like water and you swear you're going to be blessed. When the righteous hold their peace, you are in danger of destruction. You are in danger of destruction. Now, let's see how the message being understood will point us to a truth so that we can close. Since you guys are with me now, point number four, the message understood. So we've had the message declared, the message heard, the message neglected. Now the message what? Verses 34 through 36 will make this plain. And I'm going to see if I can make some plain gospel applications and close. Look at verse 34. Now they found the man that was gathering sticks and they put him in jail. Y'all see that word ward means jail because it was not yet declared what should be done to him. Do you guys see that? Right now that should be. And it was not yet declared how he should be put to death. That's for those of y'all who know how to put two thoughts together, because we've already read that the person that violates the Sabbath shall be put to death. So Moses is not putting it, Moses the one preached that sermon twice. So he ain't putting him in jail trying to find out what the Lord going to do. All right, see, I said I was going to stop. I really need to be stopping now. But this is one that kind of bugs me too. Christians that love to act like God's word doesn't address a thing. The Lord don't say anything about 
uh, snorting cocaine. Where does the Bible say you cannot snort cocaine? Show me where cocaine is in your Bible. So you do understand that we are dealing with irrational thinking here, are we not? Over-literalizing terms, failing to understand the general principle of inebriation under all kinds of modes of drunkenness. I'm making some sense, right? I'm just saying you're going to find people that'll say that, right? You're going to find people that'll use these kind of irrational arguments of silence to justify their behavior. I'm just helping folks understand that Christians are not to be irrational. They put him in war because it was not declared what should be done to him. Notice what it says over in verse... 35. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be what? Now, why would God say anything different than what he already said? This is why I'm telling you people don't like this book, because the black letters on this white page has not changed for 5000 years. It hasn't changed. Brother Paymon hasn't changed. Leviticus 18 through 20 hasn't changed. Exodus 20 hasn't changed. Y'all got that? Right. Matthew 5, Matthew 9, Matthew 19 has not changed. Romans 1 has not changed. The apocalypse has not changed. It hasn't changed. It's been saying the same thing from the beginning. Not one, not jot, not one jot or tittle from God's word will fail. Heaven and earth will pass away. See what I'm getting at? Yes. And, and, and when we have a depository of propositional truth like that, what we are saying to the world is God's word doesn't change because God doesn't change. His word is a coextension of himself. Am I making some sense? Now, here's the reason why I said the message was what? Understood. Because the people did exactly what God said. Walking this out and we'll have the table. Verse 35 And the Lord said to Moses, the men shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. You got that? He's unclean, so he has to be stoned outside the camp. Look at verse 36. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones. And he died as the Lord had commanded. Do you see it? Point number four, the message understood. Subpoint A, I think you agree with this. Willful sin was not to be forgiven. Did y'all get that? Willful sin was not to be forgiven. This is why he was stoned. And this is why back over in the book of Exodus, the man that blasphemed the name of the Lord was stoned also. Do y'all remember that account? It has the same construction as this one. A man who was, uh, uh, the man who had a son who was an Egyptian and a Hebrew was out cussing God out. And they found out, they put him in ward to find out what the Lord would do. What the Lord said, he had to be put to death. Why? Because you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Whosoever takes his name in vain will be put to death. That's what the law said. See that God don't want you cussing him out. Am I making some sense? So there was a brother thought he could just cuss God out. That brother disappeared. I want you to see what's going on with stoning. The idea of stoning was the idea of the people of God bearing witness that God was true. Stay with me. I'm going to just give you some points I'm closing. When God told the people to stone that man, That was the people publicly standing on God's side as a witness against that rebel. 
Point number one, y'all got that? See, when you call yourself a witness of Jesus Christ, you're standing on his side. You're agreeing with Jesus. You're agreeing with God. Am I making some sense? So the first thing they were doing was saying, we are not going to agree with this man that you can engage in willful rebellion against God. And it's okay because that would make that man true. And God a what? A liar. Y'all with me? So when they, they stoned him, they were saying, we reject your assertion that we can practice willful sinning against God and it will go well. Did that make some sense? Here's the second thing that they were doing, and I can go a long ways. The second thing they were doing, children of God, was rejecting works religion. They were rejecting works religion. The Sabbath day was a picture of the rest that sinners find by the death of Christ on Calvary. The Bible says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Did y'all hear what I just said? Paul said in Colossians chapter two, that new moons and feast days and Sabbath days are only a shadow. The reality of them is summed up in Jesus. We find our rest not in a day, but in a person. And it's because that person worked for us so that we don't have to work for our salvation. He worked in that he bore the law of God. He bore the curse of God. He bore that curse to Calvary's tree. He died under the wrath of God. Eternal punishment was placed on him instead of on us. Now there's rest to be found in the person of Jesus for everyone that is weary and worn and tired. So we reject works righteousness because the Bible tells us it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy has he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Am I making some sense? Stay with me. I'm almost done. Stay with me. And it's for this reason we say forgiveness which means release from your guilt. Release from your guilt is only found in the mediator who died to release you. This is why your Bible tells us in the gospel of Luke, what a beautiful truth. Luke 23 verse 34, while the one man between God and man is hanging between heaven and hell, Hanging high, stretched wide under the wrath of God. Father, forgive them because they are ignorant of what they are doing. This is the man that created the universe. This is the one that upholds all things by the word of his power. This is the one that the enemy hated even when he was in his mama's womb was ready to devour him as soon as he was born. This is the brother that had to go down to Egypt with Mary and Joseph until, until uh, Herod had died. This is the brother that when he came back, Herod's son was on the throne and the angel said to Joseph, you can't live in Judea. He had to go live in the hood, way up in Galilee, West Oakland. I'm just telling you how it was. Because he came unto his own and his own received him not. 
The world was made by him and the world. I'm talking about you and me. I'm talking about you and me. Am I making some sense? The very one who had to bear our burden, our rejection of him, our despising him. He was despised of men and rejected. The reproaches of him that reproached God came upon Jesus. When you think about Jesus, you're thinking about God stepping in the way between you and hell. When you think about Jesus, you're thinking about God stepping in between you and hell. When you think about Jesus, you're thinking about the second person of the blessed triune God standing between you and hell. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Am I making some sense? Oh, what can wash? away my sins nothing but the blood of Jesus he hung there and they pierced his side and out came water and blood forgiveness of sins to everyone that recognizes you did it in ignorance you did it in ignorance you did it in ignorance this is the blessed gift of grace that God gives you and me that we did it in ignorance. That's what Paul says. Paul says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And God used me as a pattern of long suffering to them that would afterwards believe. If he could save Paul, he could save me. And Paul says, because I did it in ignorance and in unbelief. Am I making some sense, saints? Thank God for ignorance. Thank him for ignorance. Thank him for ignorance. Thank him for ignorance. He knows how to fix our stupidity. Yeah, he does. This is why the Hebrew writer said it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. We're done. He that after he has obtained a knowledge of the truth, afterwards to reject that truth, to him there is no other sacrifice for sin, but there remains, that's verse 27, there remains nothing but a fearful looking of for judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the what? That's what that man picking up sticks was. He was an adversary to Jesus. He was an adversary to grace. And what this text is teaching is not that if we just commit an intentional general sin, the sin that we are committing is rejecting the gospel when it's preached to you. If God comes to you with the only way of salvation and you reject that, there is no other hope for salvation outside of Christ. Amen.